you have a copy of God's Word, please turn to the Gospel of John and to chapter 17 of John's Gospel. After a brief break in the Gospel of John, our regular series and exposition through this book, uh, we return this morning to John's Gospel, and now we're in chapter 17. I'll remind you of what's gone before. Jesus was in the upper room with His disciples, has been in the upper room with His disciples, perhaps for three or four or five hours. That was covered in chapters 13 through 16. He gives special, uh, intimate um, information to His disciples to help them as they seek to follow Him and prepare for His departure. But now we begin a new section in chapter 17. They're probably still there in the upper room, and we have a window into this prayer that Jesus offers in John 17. We'll read this morning verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You, since You have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom You have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they may know You, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom You have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is the beginning of a very precious passage of Scripture known as the High Priestly Prayer. Uh, The High Priestly Prayer of the Lord Jesus. Uh, It is uh, only uh, recorded in the Gospel of John, it's not present in the other chapters. And we should be very grateful, very happy, very thankful that John did record this prayer because we get in this prayer a unique window at the heart of Christ for His disciples and for His church. I wanted to briefly explain, though, throughout the history of the church, this has been referred to as the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus. Why do we call it the high priestly prayer? If you're familiar with the Bible, you might know that Jesus is said to be our prophet, our priest and our king. And it might be very, very obvious the ways in which Jesus is our prophet and Jesus is our king, but in what ways is He understood to be our, our great high priest? If you read the book of Hebrews, for example, again and again the author of the Hebrews makes this argument that Jesus is our great high priest. And the idea is that Jesus performs for us the function of a priest, and, and two functions in particular. Uh, that Jesus, number one, as our great high priest, has offered up a sacrifice for our sins, Uh, a sacrifice that doesn't need to be offered up again and again, but a sacrifice that was offered up once for all. And that sacrifice is, of course, Himself. A Jesus is unlike the high priests of old who had to make atonement for their own sins and then offered up a sacrificial lamb. Jesus was sinless, and He offers up Himself as the sacrifice. That's why He's called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He offers up Himself, and in this great act of atonement, Jesus as our high priest accomplishes redemption for us, accomplishes the forgiveness of sins for us. So in going to the cross, Jesus is is functioning as a high priest. He's offering up Himself for the sins of the world. But there's a second function that Jesus occupies as our high priest, and that is as one who makes intercessions for us. And that's not a, a word that we use very often. in in our day-to-day lives, intercession. But it basically means that Jesus appears before God on our behalf, and He represents us. He, in some sense, pleads our case before the Father. He even offers prayers up for us. Uh, do, Do you realize now, Christian, that right now, the Lord Jesus, risen, ascended at the right hand of God the Father, is offering up prayers for His people, offering up prayers for us, offering up prayers for you. He does that in his function and capacity as a high priest. And one of the reasons I love John 17 and I'm so grateful to God that he inspired the Apostle John to record it is that here we get a window in to what Jesus' prayers for us are like. Have you ever wondered, how does Jesus speak to his Father? And, and, and when, when I come up, if I ever do, what does he say about me? What, is, what does he pray? What is the content of Jesus' prayers for his people? And we have that laid out for us John 17, it's a remarkably edifying and encouraging chapter for, for Christians. Well, 
Traditionally, the high priestly prayer in John 17 is broken up into three sections, three main prayers of the Lord Jesus, and over the next three weeks, we'll consider each section of the prayer. So, it'll be three weeks in John 17. And those three divisions uh, go like this. Uh, Jesus first prays in verses 1 through 5 for Himself. That's what we'll consider this morning. What does Jesus pray for Himself? And then in verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for His disciples. Verses 6 through 19, that's the main body of the prayer. How does Jesus pray for His followers, for His disciples? And then in verses 20 through 26, Jesus prays for the church, uh, particularly for future believers who would come to faith in Christ through the witness of the apostles. So how Jesus prays for Himself, that's this week. Next week, Lord willing, we'll consider how Jesus prays for His disciples, and then the week after that, how Jesus prays for the church. So this morning, we want to consider in verses 1 through 5 how it is that Jesus prays for Himself. And there's two questions I want us to ask to open up these verses. And the first question is this. Very simply, what does Jesus pray for Himself? Let me just, just get the content out there. What does He actually verbalize to God as His prayer for Himself? If you read these verses, you realize He doesn't pray for relief. He doesn't pray for an escape from the cross that He's about to endure for the sins of His people. Instead, when Jesus is facing his final hour, he's, he's just hours away from being taken into custody and going to the cross. When Jesus is facing that prospect, he prays for glory. He prays that the Father would glorify him. Look at verse 1 again, if you would. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And skip down to verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What does Jesus pray for himself? Very simply, Jesus prays that the Father would glorify the Son. Jesus says to his Father, Father, give me glory. Now, that may seem like an odd prayer to some. It might seem even a little egotistical, maybe, and self-centered. Here Jesus is about to lay down His life for those He loves. He's about to accomplish the great work of redemption for sinners, but His focus, at least at the outset of this prayer, is on Himself. The first thing that occurs to Jesus to pray as He's going to the cross is, Father, glorify me. And something about that in our ears doesn't seem right. We might even say it seems inappropriate, actually, that Jesus would be it's almost narcissistic in, in some ways. Well, might I suggest that if this prayer sounds inappropriate or out of place in our ears, it may only be because we have not appreciated the utter God-centeredness of the Bible and of the universe. I want to take a pretty significant digression here and talk about something that I think is of tremendous importance and, and something that just pastorally, I'll say, I think we need to appreciate more in our particular church family. In, in Christian circles, uh, we can identify two ways of reading the Bible and two ways of understanding uh, the world. And I'm going to characterize them this way. One is essentially man-centered, and one is essentially God-centered. Those are the two basic ways I think we can read the Bible and understand the world. So, so in the man-centered scheme, how do they read the Bible? What does the world look like in the man-centered perspective? Well, in the man-centered perspective, we understand the world is ultimately about my story and about my narrative and my experiences and my worth and my happiness. And in this perspective, we would understand the Bible to essentially line up with us as we read the Scriptures. The Bible is about me, and moreover, it's about how much God loves me and how much God wants me. And, and the Bible and this man-centered scheme is understood to be a sort of guidebook for my life or a sort of roadmap for my life or God's love letter to me. I'm aware some people use that language. They don't always mean the worst things about that. But when that language is being used, there is this sense in which we're at the center of things. It's the roadmap for my life. It's the love letter to me that God has 
written. Like the Bible is ultimately for me and for maximizing my happiness. It's ultimately a statement about me and my worth. It's ultimately the story of, of my narrative. And, and then the gospel in this man-centered scheme, which you know, right, the gospel is a message within the Bible. The whole Bible is not the gospel, but the Bible does reveal the gospel message, which is the good news about what God has done in Christ to make a way of salvation for sinners. In the man-centered scheme, we, we understand the gospel to essentially line up with a man-centered view of the world. Uh, the gospel in this scheme is about how worthy I am of the love of God, how, how worthy I am of His affection. The gospel is about how valuable God sees me, and the gospel is understood to be a commentary on my worth. God loves you so much, He just had to have you, and so He sent His Son into the world because He couldn't contemplate heaven without you, and now you're part of the family. The emphasis in the gospel is on you and how important you are and how inherently lovely you are to God. That's a man-centered perspective. In the God-centered perspective, we understand the universe to revolve around the glory and majesty of God. All creation is meant to redound to the glory of God. The events of history and providence are meant to magnify the glory of God. The chief end or goal or purpose of every man and woman is to glorify God. That's the message of the Bible. It's the revelation of the glory of God. And the gospel, therefore, in this God-centered scheme is about magnifying the glory of God through the salvation of sinners. So, so the salvation of sinners in this perspective is not merely an end in and of itself. It's not just that God just had to have me, and, and so He saved me. It, it's actually that my salvation is the means to the further glorification of God. God saves sinners in order to magnify His glory among the people of the world. So even my salvation is understood not to be a commentary on just how awesome and lovely I am, but how great and awesome and gracious God is in saving sinners. So another way we can illustrate, I think, the distinction that I'm trying to get at is with this question. What is God ultimately after in the world? Like, like what is the end goal in, in all of this? The man-centered perspective would say God is all about me. He's about us. He comes to save us, to maximize our happiness, and that's what this is all about. The Bible is God's love letter to me and how special I am to Him. That's at the center of things. In the God-centered perspective, which I insist is the biblical perspective, God is all about Himself, and God is all about the manifestation of His glory and the enjoyment of His glory by His creatures, and that is good news. The Bible is not a love letter to me, but a revelation of the surpassing majesty and glory and power of the one true and living God, and a proclamation that God will establish His glory among the nations in part by reconciling, by saving a people to Himself who will worship and adore Him for all eternity. What is God after in the world? He's after the display and enjoyment of His glory. I'll say that again. What is God after in the world? He is after the, the display and the enjoyment of His glory. And, and this is the message of the Bible. Let me encourage you this morning with this word. God isn't all about you. God is about God. And that is good news. Like that's good news for you. He isn't all about you. God is about God. God isn't ultimately about human happiness. He's about divine glory, which is so striking a thing to say in a culture like ours. I mean, this just flies in the face of everything we hear, right? I, I mean, our, our culture tells us, sells us on the message that, like, you are at the center of the universe. Like, you need to be looking out for number one. You are special. You are unique. You are awesome. You should get this. Why shouldn't you have that? You know, that, that's, that sort of thing. We hear that all the time in our culture, that you are at the center of the universe, you need to treat yourself, you are varsity, there's no higher good in the universe than your happiness. Some of you might remember, if you're old enough, uh, Stuart Smiley, Smalley, he was on SNL like in the 80s and the 90s and he had his uh, hour of affirmation it was called, and, and he, he had this program and he would start the program off the same way every time, he'd be looking at himself in the mirror, this very sentimental guy, and he would say, I'm going to put on a great show today 
because I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. That, that was his message of affirmation to, to himself. Not so funny 20 or 30 years on, because that's precisely the message we're encouraged to say to ourselves. You're beautiful. You're awesome. Like you need to have as much self-esteem as possible. Think as highly of yourself as possible. Life is about you. Life is about your happiness. You are entitled. You are owed. You should get what you want in life. You're good enough. You're smart enough. And doggone it, people hopefully like you. The world is operating out of this framework. Uh, Christian, if you go into a doctor's office, for example, most doctors are going to be operating out of this framework. They're going to assume your health is all about you and the elongation of your life and the quality of your life. Why would you not want uh, 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 every bit of advantage from a health standpoint? You go into the financial advisor's office. They're probably going to be working out of this framework that you're number one, your money is for you, and we need to maximize the benefits you feel from your money for you and, and yours. Uh, students who go to the college admissions office, uh, we got some high schoolers who are in the application process, trying to find a school, declare a major, things like that. Like, it is all about you all the time. Y you all might have this actually harder than any of us. Uh, young people, you are conditioned to believe the world is about you. Everyone wants to know, oh, what are you going to major in? What are you going to study? Where are you going to go to school? Uh, you know, high school, you, you have your recitals and your plays and your sports, and people come and you're applauded perpetually. And, and again, you go to the college admissions office and they'll tell you this is what our school can do for you. We're all about you. You're awesome. We're so glad that you're here. And it's you, 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 you all the time. When I was a young person, I experienced this. I did pretty good in school. I was in extracurriculars. And, and all the time, People don't mean to flatter you necessarily, but people are applauding you all the time. You know, like, oh, what are you going to study? Oh, that's great. You're going to do great. You're awesome. You're unique. You're special. You are just, just the best. And, and one thing, I'll just tell you young people here, just speaking out of experience, like I had a really big head when I was 16, 17, and it, hopefully it shrunk some, still probably too big. But, but, but one thing I wish I had done when I was a young person uh, when I was in high school, let's say, is um, every morning after I would do my devotions, and I will say I wish I had done my devotions more faithfully. I don't look back at days when I skipped and thought that was a great decision. I wish I'd been more consistent in God's Word, so maybe that's the first thing I should say. But, but what I would do, seriously, if I could go back in time, is, is, is I would, after I read my Bible in the morning, uh, go to the bathroom, look myself in the eye in the mirror and say, Alex, before you go out there today, just remember, you're a moron, and you are not nearly as impressive as you think you are, and you're not nearly as awesome as other people tell you are. I mean, seriously, young people, you are not the greatest thing since sliced bread. You are not all that in a bag of potato chips. You're not the center of the universe. Uh, you, the world, the sun doesn't rise and set on, on, on what major you're going to declare in college. And I just want to lovingly encourage you. I wish someone had said this to me. You know, but if you want to, to, to guarantee that you'll have a, an unsatisfying and miserable life, just buy the hype about yourself. Just keep counting the likes on Instagram and Facebook. And, and keep listening. Draw close those people who praise you and applaud you and, and tell you you're just, man, you're it, man. You're varsity. And if anyone says you're junior varsity, man, that is a, an affront to your spectacular and awesome and beautiful self. If you watch commercials nowadays, just, just watch the next 10 or 12 you see on, on YouTube or on TV. It's all about you and what you deserve and what you should have. Our culture teaches us that we're at the center of everything. And if you want to see your house crumble, build it on the sinking sand of how awesome you are and how entitled you should be and how much you should get in life. The world is lying to us in these messages. But what's really sad is that sometimes we can do this in the church as well. Uh, we can preach in such a way that might validate the perspective that we are at the center of the universe, uh, that we are what's most important. Just, just think of the gospel itself and the way it sometimes comes to us, hopefully not in this place. But, but sometimes the way in which the gospel is preached is, is um, you know, do, you, do you feel misunderstood? Do you feel underappreciated and unloved? 
Have you been victimized in some way or been abandoned in some way? And don't you, you just feel unloved and uncared for and, and undervalued? And, and, then, and then Jesus is presented as the one who can cure those things. Listen, listen, Jesus, he thinks so much of you. He values you so much that he came into the world to die for your sins. That's how, how much Jesus thinks of you. And, and then the offer of the gospel is, now will you accept his love? Now, there's, there's a seed in that that's somewhat true, but, but what is the overall message? That, that Jesus thinks I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, he likes me. He, he wants me. And, 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 and maybe my mom and dad didn't appreciate me, or my girlfriends don't appreciate me, or my brother didn't appreciate me, and man, I've missed out on some opportunities, but Jesus rates my value so highly. He thinks I'm so awesome and so inherently lovely and beautiful that he came into the world to die for me. And all of a sudden now, the, the gospel call is, is not coming from uh, God himself who came in human flesh to confront sinners in their sins and to proclaim the message that they must repent and believe in order to be saved from their sins and from the wrath of God. The offer of the gospel is now, will you accept the love of Jesus and his affirmation of you? Because he really thinks you're spectacular. And, and what's happened? In our preaching of the gospel, haven't we substituted the God-centeredness of the gospel message? with a man-centered perspective, a, a, a view of the gospel in which we're not being confronted in our sin with our need to repent and believe on a Savior, but rather being affirmed in who we are in our sinful state. Uh, when the gospel is preached in this way, it's being preached from the man-centered perspective, which at the end of the day is all about me. But when we read the Bible and we learn uh, there in the Bible, that the universe is not about us. It confronts our inherent man-centeredness. Uh, it shakes us out of our perverse self-centeredness and our, our lethal obsession with self and shows us that the universe is actually about far more than me and my achievement and my praise and my success. It tells us it's not about me, but actually the world and the Bible and the gospel is all about God. Now, hear what I'm saying. Don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying God doesn't love you. I'm not saying that you're not God's precious child. I'm not saying he doesn't delight in you if you are his child. I'm not saying that at all. Gloriously, wonderfully, God loves us. God is even said to sing over his people. He delights in me as his child. Christ delights in me as his little lamb and a sheep of his flock. But I'm, I'm trying to say that behind that love, behind his love for us, there is this ultimate motive, and it is actually to exalt and magnify the glory of God. God's ultimate motive in our salvation is the enjoyment of His own glory. Notice I said ultimate, not ulterior. God's not using us or something like that. He really does love us, but it, it's to give us an enjoyment of Him and who He is and His glory. His glory is ultimately the issue in our salvation. God is ultimately about himself. He's after his glory even in our salvation. Uh, you recognize this, right? We, we seek to prioritize missions in our church and evangelism and want to engage sacrificially in sending laborers out into the harvest so that men and women can be saved. But you, you recognize, right, that, that even in evangelism and in missions, what are we doing but recruiting worshipers for God? Like, it's not just so people can get the fire insurance. It's so that they would be transformed into worshipers of God, people who love and delight in the glory of God. I think it's John Piper who said, missions exist because worship does not. Missions exist because worship does not. Why do we send forth the gospel in the hopes that men and women would be saved? So that they would come to delight in and enjoy and magnify and worship the glory of God throughout all eternity forever. Ultimately, worship in God is the heart of the issue. Not just people getting out of hell, but actually being devoted to God. His glory is the issue, even in salvation. The prize for Christ is not just people who have escaped hell. The prize for the Lord Jesus is a redeemed people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation who will worship Him forever throughout all eternity. Now, I'm aware to say God is about God and ultimately His glory, if you've not heard that before, I'm aware this can jostle us a little bit and can sort of shake us a little bit. 
And, and sometimes the retort is, doesn't that make God out to be something of a narcissist? That he's just in this for himself, and, and, and I'm just sort of an accessory to all of this. Where do I, I fit into the mix? Isn't this wrong of God to think this way? It's prideful. It's egotistical, narcissistic. Well, it would be for any one of us to think this way, but not so for God. A man named Henry Skugel once said this, the worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. The worth and excellency of a soul, the quality of a being, is to be coordinate with the object of its love, its devotion, its worship. In other words, the most excellent beings in the world set their affection and love on the highest good. And there is no higher good than God. So for us to be taken with anything other than God as the highest and worthiest and most beautiful object of our worship and affection would be idolatry. So also with God. For God to have as His object, anything higher than the display and enjoyment of His own glory, which is the highest good, would be sinful. The adoration and glorification and exaltation of the glory of God is the greatest good in the world, and God is devoted to that good and to that purpose. For Him to put anything else at the center of it all would represent a downgrade in His own character. God rates His own glory higher than anything. And to rate anything higher than His majesty, His glory, would represent a downgrade in His own nature, His own character. God must be for God, or else He ceases to be God, because God is the greatest and highest and most perfect being in the universe, and must be at the center of it all. Like I said, I'm aware this is new to you, it's a new way to talk about God and what He's after in the world, it, it can jostle us a little bit. And some of you are saying, I'm a little skeptical, and He hasn't read any verses yet, so I don't know that I'm on board. Let me, let me just read, kind of rapid fire, a few verses that convey this idea. You don't need to turn there. You could write these down, or I can give you my notes after the service, okay? Psalm 23, verses 1 through 3, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Sounds like He's about me, Right? He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. Why am I part of the flock of the shepherd? Why is he doing all these things for me and leading me in paths of righteousness and beside still waters and in green pastures? He's doing it for the glory of his name. Isaiah 43, verse 7, we're told that God created us for His glory. Isaiah 49, verse 3, we're told that God called Israel for His glory. Psalm 106, verses 7 and 8, we're told that God rescued Israel from Egypt for His glory. Romans 9, 17, God raised Pharaoh up to show, to display His power and glorify His name. Ezekiel 20, verse 14, God spared Israel in the wilderness for the glory of His name. 2 Samuel 7, verse 23, God gave Israel victory in Canaan for the glory of His name. Ezekiel 36, 22 and 23, God restored Israel from exile for the glory of His name. It's in that passage where God explicitly says, I'm not doing this for you. I'm not, I'm not about to act for your glory because you're awesome. I'm going to act for my glory. My deliverance of you, Israel, is not on your account, but on the magnification of my glory among the peoples of the world. Isaiah 43, verse 25, and Psalm 25, verse 11, we're told that God forgives our sins for the sake of His glory. John 7, verse 18, we're told that Jesus sought the glory of His Father in all that He did. Matthew 5, 16, and 1 Peter 2, 12, we're told that even our good works are meant to display the glory of God. In John 14, verse 13, a verse we considered some weeks ago, we're told that prayer is answered for the glory of God. In John 12, Jesus indicates that He's going to die in order that God would be glorified. Romans 3, 25 and 26, we're told that Jesus' death on the cross is a vindication of the glory and righteousness of God. In John 16, verse 14, we're told that we're given the Holy Spirit so that He can glorify Christ in our lives. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, 
do all to the glory of God. Like literally the way I walk out of this building and drive home today and, and pick up that sandwich is to, is to be productive toward the magnification of God's glory. 1 Peter 4.11, we're told our spiritual gifts are all meant to serve the glory of God. Now take that one in. Our spiritual gifts are not given to us for our self-realization or something, to build my platform. Spiritual gifts are given to us to serve the glory of God, and they are only useful, only valuable, insofar as they serve the glory of God. 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10, Jesus will return for what purpose? To be glorified in his saints. Habakkuk 2, 14, we're told that the whole earth will one day be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Is God about his glory? Is the ocean full of water? That's the argument of Habakkuk 2.14. Romans 11.36, we're told that from Jesus and through Jesus and to Jesus are all things to him be glory forever and ever. And in Revelation 21, verse 23, we're told that the glory of God, namely the Lamb, the Lord Jesus, will replace the sun in the new heavens and the new earth. Think of all that the sun does for us light and heat and it shines and it's brilliance. Jesus will occupy that place, the central place in everything. He will be the sun in the new heavens and new earth. In Ephesians 1 verse 5, we're told that in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace in which he has blessed us in the beloved. So what we see is that the Bible, the gospel, the universe is not about me and how inherently lovely and awesome and valuable and worthy I am, but about how great and glorious and awesome God is, how perfect and splendid and majestic the Lord Jesus is. The sun rises and sets on the glory of God not on me and my little life and my little problems and my day-to-day. God's glory is at the center of all things. The gospel is not about me. The gospel is all about Jesus and His majesty and His authority and the magnification of His glory in the salvation of sinners and the establishment of His lordship over all. Now, that is why Jesus prays at the outset of John 17, Father, Glorify your son. Like, like, let's do it all now. That very thing that is central to the existence of the world, let's accomplish it. Now, that was like half my sermon I spent on that digression. Some of you were hoping that it was a whole lot more than half. But, but why spend that much time talking about this issue of God's glory being at the center of the universe and of the Bible and of the gospel? For this reason, When we read those words at the opening of the high priestly prayer, Father, glorify your Son. I don't want us to be thinking, well, that seems odd. Seems inappropriate. I want everything in our beings to cry, yes. Like, yes, Father, answer His prayer. Like, worthy is the Lamb who was slain and hath redeemed us by His blood to receive honor and glory and power and riches and blessing forever and ever. Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto Him who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Like, yes, that's the cry of my heart. Father, glorify Your Son. The the, the Son of God is the, the Son of my universe. And, and Father, answer his prayer and accomplish that thing for which I exist and for which all of God's creatures exist, for which the church exists, for which missions exist. Glorify the Son of God in your presence with the glory that he had with you before the world began. I, I don't want us to think this is, this is somehow wrong or this is off or something like that. I want to say, yes, he is worthy of glory. And, and the exaltation and magnification of his glory That's the theme of my life. Nothing delights me more than to see Jesus assuming his proper place in the center of everything. To see God as the object of worship and adoration. I don't want to be the sun in anybody's universe. But rather, God should have his place at the center of all. 
And when I see Jesus saying, Father, glorify your son, I'm seeing nothing other than Jesus saying, Father, give me the place that I'm destined to have. Make me the priority in all of this. And win to me a a generation, a world of worshipers who will adore me and honor me and praise me throughout all eternity. I want to think nothing could be more appropriate. Nothing could be more right than God occupying his place in the center of everything and the Lord Jesus being exalted and glorified among his people. Father, answer his prayer, we pray. I don't want us to read these verses and feel perplexed. I want us to read these verses and say that it's just as it should be, and God be praised. And let me just encourage you. Again, if you're not accustomed to thinking in in this way, that God's glory is at the center of, of everything, if you get this right, and if you let this paradigm shift take place, where all of a sudden I'm not at the center of everything, rather God His glory in Christ Jesus is at the center of all. It's sort of like everything else falls into place in the Bible. So all of a sudden, my life has a bigger purpose than me. My life is actually ultimately about the glory of God. That's a much bigger deal than the little back and forth of of my little life. Rather, my life has a larger purpose. I'm serving alongside this whole world the magnification of the glory of God. All of a sudden, trials aren't so perplexing. Like if I'm at the center of everything and my happiness is the son of the universe, well then, then what does my cancer have to do with anything? Isn't that against the whole purpose and everything? Ah, but if I live for God and His glory, well I don't have to wonder why I have cancer or my child has Down syndrome or why um, I'm in a difficult marriage or something like that. You see, God is working out larger purposes for His glory that don't depend on my happiness or my pleasant little life. And so I can actually glory in trials and in hardship because my life is for the glory of God. And one day, when these trials are far behind, I'm going to enjoy Him forever in paradise, worshiping Him in sinless perfection. See, it helps you understand the universe better. It helps you understand your life better. If you're not at the center of everything, and then all of a sudden doctrines like election or predestination that seemed so perplexing before aren't so hard to reconcile now. Like if God is about God, why shouldn't he have mercy on whomever he will have mercy and compassion on whomever he will have compassion? God's glory is at the center of everything and he'll work out his plan and whoever he wants to work it out. And look, I don't have to sweat that. Moreover, I don't have to scrutinize providence. God, why did you bring that into my life? Or, 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 or why did I miss out on that opportunity? Or why did that person treat me in that way? That hurt me so much. We recognize God is working out his sovereign plan, that even those things that might be unpleasant to us are actually part of weaving God's greater glory in everything. We begin to see the universe differently, and we begin to see our lives more in harmony with the Bible and what God reveals about himself. Well, now I want to ask a second question. First question is, what does Jesus pray? Well, he prays that Father would glorify him. I want to ask a second question. We'll be much more brief here. The second question is this. What does Jesus' glorification have to do with us? Like, where do I fit in in all of this? Am I just an afterthought then? Look, God's just about his glory, and I'm just sort of this Russian doll on the side that he might include in the mix sometimes. What does it mean for us that God is about His glory and that Jesus wishes to be glorified? Look with me at verses uh, 1, 2, and 3. Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You. Verse 2, since You have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom You have given Him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We see here that the giving of eternal life to God's people, to the elect, to those who have been given from the Father to the Son, the giving of eternal life, salvation, brings glory to the Son. So so my salvation as one chosen of God is actually bound up with the glory of Christ. God has so united the glory of His Son with my salvation as one of His elect 
that to pursue my salvation is in fact to pursue the glory of his son. You see that there? Father, glorify myself uh, just as you have given all things into my hand and given to me those to whom I will give eternal life. He's saying, I grant eternal life to people whom the Father has given me in order to accomplish this purpose, to be glorified by my Father. So, so salvation itself, salvation of sinners, the giving of eternal life is the means of glorifying God. God grants salvation to His people in order to glorify the Lord Jesus. So, so now to pursue the salvation of the elect, the salvation of God's people, is, is part of the same purpose of glorifying the Son of God. My salvation is united with God's glory. And, and now, watch this. This becomes important when you get to verse 3. Like, does this mean that Jesus is just using us then? So really, He's after His glory, and I'm just, like, He steps on me to get to it. He saves me so that ultimately He gets glory. Verse we see Jesus gets glory, verse 2, in part by giving eternal life to the elect. But now what is eternal life? And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So, so, so what is it that I get in eternal life? It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. What God is giving me through Jesus in eternal life is actually himself. God is giving me God. He says, he says I'm going to give eternal life to all of my elect, and this will be to the glory of my Son. And what is eternal life? To know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. What I get in eternal life is God himself. So, so, so salvation, eternal life, is actually the enjoyment of God. To have God, to know God, to enjoy Him, to want Him, to taste Him, to experience Him in my life. So, so, so heaven is not a place, ultimately, for people who are just afraid of hell. Heaven is a place for people who love God, people who want God, people who take pleasure in God, people who enjoy God. This is the experience of eternal life, not endless days on the golf course or an eternity, you know, basking in the sun on the beach or something like that. Heaven is, eternal life is, the enjoyment of the white-hot glory of God in sinless paradise forever. It's to have God and to know God and to enjoy God and to take pleasure in God and to do so in sinless perfection. So, so what, what God is saying is that I'm not just about the display of my glory in Jesus Christ. I'm about the enjoyment of my glory. I want people to taste my glory, to have my glory, which means my happiness is actually bound up in the magnification of the glory of God. As He gets more glory, and I taste Him and His glory and have Him and know Him and experience Him, I become happier, more satisfied, and delighted more and more. That's what it is to experience eternal life. It's not an experience of immortality divorced from the person of Jesus. It is to experience forever the person of Jesus and to have him as the light and sun and satisfaction of my life. How do I fit into all of this? My salvation and my enjoyment of the glory of the Lord Jesus becomes part of the very purpose of the universe. That I've been saved by his grace, I've been called by his grace, I've been given the gift of eternal life. And what is eternal life after all? To know God to enjoy God, to have God, and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. I want to close with just a couple of implications and then we'll be done. Two implications in particular. What does all this have to do with our lives and with our weeks and months and years? Number one, if eternal life is about knowing and enjoying God, then God is not after your begrudging submission and obedience. He's after your joy, namely your enjoyment of Him and His glory forever. If eternal life is about knowing and enjoying God, then God is not after your begrudging submission and obedience. He's after your joy, 
namely your enjoyment of him and his glory. Let that transform the way you think about the Christian life. God is actually after my happiness, my joy, not in sinful pleasure, but, but in that greatest of all pleasures, that greatest of all good, that highest beauty in the universe, the enjoyment of God himself. And listen, if that seems small to you or uninteresting to you, uh, you don't know what you're talking about. It, it, it's like the analogy C.S. Lewis uses of the, 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 the small child who's making mud pies because he can't possibly contemplate how awesome a holiday at the ocean is. Like, if that doesn't seem attractive to you, it's just because maybe we're too satisfied with lower pleasures, like money and sex and video games and social media and the next show on Netflix and golf and the beach, and we don't realize uh, that God, the creator of these things, is the source of all joy and happiness, and in the gospel, God is offering the enjoyment of himself, the greatest and highest of all joys. So God now is not after me just following rules that make me miserable. He's actually trying to introduce me to the greatest joy my soul is capable of. He's trying to call me higher. He's trying to call me to better. He's trying to call me to more. He's trying to call me to that thing that will be enjoyed in its greatest and fullest fulfillment in the new heavens and the new earth. And so if eternal life is to know God and Jesus Christ whom God has sent, then knowing God and enjoying God becomes the great object of my life. And so we should ask questions, brothers and sisters, like, how can I know God better? Uh, what disciplines can I cultivate to help me in my quest to know God? What changes can I make to my schedule, to my week, to my life, to better experience eternal life? That is, to know God. And I can tell you a few things that will become much more significant to you if you start asking yourself those kinds of questions. All of a sudden, reading God's Word be elevated in its importance. Actually learning who He is and pressing deeper and deeper into knowing Him in the Scriptures becomes more important. Prayer becomes more significant. Actually talking to God and experiencing communion with Him. Corporate worship and gathering to worship God where He promises to reveal Himself in special ways becomes of greater importance. Friendships that actually help me in growing in my knowledge of God and experience of His grace become more a priority. I'm not just after playmates who I enjoy hanging out with and buddies who can go with me to the game, but I, I want people going to point me to a deeper knowledge and experience of God. And I can assure you, you will long for heaven like you have never longed for it before. If ultimately I exist to know and enjoy God, man, I can't wait to be in heaven. I will know Him and enjoy Him perfectly. And then other things start to diminish in importance, like worldly achievement, or the news, or the release date of the next show on Netflix I want to watch. Those things just sort of fade away. And, and, and what takes their place is this quest of my life to know and experience God in deeper and fuller and richer ways. A second implication for us, and then we'll be done. If the purpose of my life and my salvation is the glory of God and Jesus Christ, then my entire life should be oriented around glorifying Him. If the purpose of my life and my salvation is the glory of God in Jesus Christ, then my entire life should be oriented around glorifying Him. My goal in life is not how can I have as much fun as possible. It's not how can I achieve as much success as possible. It's not how can I make my church as big as possible. Everything rather is about how can I glorify God with my life. And, and so I begin to ask questions like, how can I glorify God with my money? If, if, if you had a pie chart up here on the screens of how you use your money, a certain amount is for groceries, a certain amount is for mortgage and bills, a certain amount is for leisure, we can see that pie chart. Would you say, I'm honoring God with my money? Are you glorifying God with your resources? We ask questions like, how can I glorify God with my time? Listen, life will go by like this. It's said to be a vapor. I only got a certain number of years. I don't actually know how many years that's going to be. I get one life. How am I going to use it, use my time to the glory of God? How can I glorify God in my family? Husbands and wives, do you 
you ask one another this question. How can we orient our family life in such a way that God is most glorified in the family? How can we organize the family schedule, the priorities of this family, that God gets glory? Let me just press in on, on you husbands here. Be the leaders in this. Okay, initiate that conversation. Hold before your wife and your kids a vision for how we as a family are going to live and exist for the glory of God because that's at the center of everything. How will we structure our lives and our time to glorify God? How can I glorify God through my trial or through my disability or disease? How can I glorify God with my sexuality? How can I glorify God in my career? How can I glorify God with my major? That's a big one. I often ask young people what they want to major in if they're thinking of going to college and, and, and why they settled on a certain major, and too often it seems for all the wrong reasons. Uh, your major, young people, is not your chance at self-actualization or, or self-fulfillment or something like that. People will tell you, what are you interested? What do you enjoy doing? Well, maybe you can end up doing something you're interested in and enjoy doing. But when you're facing a life decision like that, what, what, what career path am I trying to set up here? The question should ultimately be, how can my life bring the most glory to God? What would most honor Him? I'm going to give four years to studying something. What would bring glory to God? Not what would just make me the happiest or something like that. How could I honor God with my major, honor God with my career? How can I glorify God in the way I use my time and spend my days? We recognize that all of life is to be lived to the glory of God, and that's like the guiding north star in our lives. And that is the priority for us. When we ask questions about how we'll use our money, our time, our days, our careers, how we're going to organize family life, how we're going to organize the ministries and life of this church, the great object in everything must be the glory of God. Let me close in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us more and more to delight, glory in, and enjoy the matchless worth and glory and majesty of the Lord Jesus, that we would organize our lives and our days around the glory of God and bringing more and more praise to you, and that more and more we would experience real enjoyment and pleasure. Uh, true enjoyment of the display of the glory of God. We pray, Father, that we would fulfill our life's purpose as your creatures and those who have been redeemed by your grace, that we would realize the chief end and purpose of our lives, that it is to be lived to the glory of God, and that it is to be enjoyed forever and ever. We pray, Father, that we would no longer be satisfied with lesser pleasures, but, Father, that you would you would cause our minds and our hearts to rise above the feeble things of this world and to take pleasure and delight in the glory of God in all things. We pray, Father, that you would help us to appreciate more and more your great condescension and grace in making even our salvation part of what you are accomplishing in the world for the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Father, please give us understanding in these things, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.